What a friend we have in Jesus All our sins and griefs to bear Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hills online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. Online, you can search Faith on Hill Church on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, and you can find all of our online content. We have our live stream at faithonhill.com as well, and you can follow us at Faith on Hill on social media. In person, we gather together on Sunday mornings. We have kids' church. We gather together for worship through song and prayer and gathering in community and studying the Word of God. And then we spread out throughout the week in small groups that meet online and in person at different times throughout the week. And you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com for more information. We have youth group that meets on Tuesday nights. And if you want to support the work that God is doing here at Faith on Hill, you can go to our website and the giving tab and you can uh, support and give if you consider this your church home. We're going to continue our study in the book of Joshua today, and we have sort of what's a forgotten story. Everybody remembers Jericho. You march around the city, the walls fall down. A lot of people know about crossing the Jordan River, but there's this little in-between that kind of gets forgotten about, and we're going to look at it today as we study chapter 5. Well, chapter 5, verse 1 in the book of Joshua says, When all of the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all of the Canaanite kings on the coast heard how Yahweh had dried up the Jordan River before the Israelites until they had crossed over, it says their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to fight the Israelites. So it's reasonable to infer from those verses that these different kings, and it wasn't like there was like one kingdom with a king. There was these little city-states. You might have one city or a cluster of towns or villages, and they would have a king or a chief or a a kind of a supreme leader. And each city-state were the kind of the collection of the Amorites and the collection of the Canaanites. And maybe you have a really powerful king who ruled over a couple of cities and then there's smaller ones. And who knows the politics, but the idea is, is they were ready to fight. The Israelites had been this group of people wandering the wilderness for 40 years. They knew about them. And some of the people, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but some of the peoples south of the Promised Land had tried to make war against the Israelites. The Israelites had had no interest. They said, hey, we are just passing through. We're not here to cause trouble. We're just going to go over here. And they said, no, we're going to take you out. And God delivered them. And so now the people up in the promised land knew that the Israelites were a threat to them. And so they were getting plans together to make war, to come and meet what they perceived as this threat. And then they hear That Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, the same God that we serve, had dried up the Jordan River and all the people of the Israelites crossed over on dry land and their courage melted away. They halted all their battle plans. What can we do against a people whose strength is not in themselves, not in their numbers, not in their weapons, not in their technology, but in their God? And it's funny for all the public adherence that they would have given to their gods, to their Baals, to their Ashtarapoles. They didn't think that they could have a chance against the God who dried up the Jordan River, the God who 
parted the Red Sea, the God who kept a people together in the wilderness for 40 years and they come out strong, maybe even stronger. And their hearts melted in fear. Now at that time, in verse 2, it says that the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gilbeth Haraloth. Now, this, verse 3, or sorry, verse 4, this is why he did so. All of those who came up out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on their way after leaving Egypt. We've talked about this before. The people of Israel left Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, went to Mount Sinai. That's where they got the Ten Commandments. And then they headed north to the Promised Land. The journey from Egypt to the Promised Land should not have taken very long. In fact, uh, even with children and and older folks and, and all the luggage and everything, it really wasn't that long of a journey, relatively speaking. And even with the detour over to Mount Sinai so they could make the covenant with God and get the Ten Commandments and the whole thing, even with that detour, still not very long. The reason that they were in the wilderness for over 40 years is because when they got to the promised land, they rebelled against God. When they got to the promised land, even though they had seen the Red Sea parted, even though they had been there at the mountain Sinai, and they had seen the wonder and the power and the might of God, they got to the promised land and they said, The people are too big and too strong and too powerful and we have no strength to fight. We have no strength to come here. And God said, you can't enter. And so that generation died off over the next 40 years as they wandered the wilderness. And finally God said, okay, now a new generation has risen up and they're ready to go in. But what had apparently happened is this. God had given to Abraham a covenant And part of that covenant agreement, I will be your God, you will be my people. Part of that covenant agreement is that every Hebrew male would be circumcised. And specifically, eight days after they were born, and we've talked quite a bit about this around Christmas time, Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day to fulfill the law. There was no part of the Old Testament law that Jesus did not fulfill. But for whatever reason, and we are not told why, but for whatever reason, in the wilderness, the people had not kept this part of the covenant. They had not kept this part of their agreement with Yahweh. And so, when it's time to enter the promised land, every male of that generation, every male of military age, has not been circumcised. If you don't know what circumcision is, go home, ask your mother. I'm sure it will not be an awkward conversation. And I make that joke anytime circumcision is mentioned. And then my kids went and did it. They heard a Christmas message. I talked about circumcision. And they went home and they said, okay, dad, what is it? Actually, they went home and said, okay, mom, what is it? And their mother said, go ask your father. And I explained it to them. It says, all the people, verse 5, that came out, out of Egypt had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about the wilderness for 40 years until all of the men who were military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised them. 
since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them on that day that they would not see the land that he promised their ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. In verse 7, he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones that Joshua circumcised. And they were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Now, that is a problem. If all of your fighting force is laid up, recovering, you are in trouble. Some of you know I'm a big baseball fan. You know, we're getting close to spring training. And this is the time of year where you assess the roster, you look at who you have on the team, how good are we potentially going to be this year, and the constant theme with my team, the Mariners, is if they can stay healthy, they should be pretty good. If they can stay healthy, they should be pretty good. But what happens if you get plagued with injuries? You can have the best team on paper in spring training, and then, you know, the first few months of the year, and all your best players get injured, and the next thing you know, it's you're out of contention for the rest of the year. What happens if all your fighting men are down? You cross the Jordan River. Now you're there. You're in the promised land. And then God says, oh, by the way, all of your fighting men need to be circumcised. And they will be laid up, resting until they are healed. And if, if they had been attacked, I'm sure they would have picked up weapons. But they would have been hamstrung by injury. Limited in mobility. They would have been massacred. Now, we were told in verse 1 that the Canaanites and the Amorites had melted in fear. Their courage had failed them. They were not going to attack. But the people of Israel would not have known that until later. Everything we read about in chapter 5, verse 1, they found out after the fact. They didn't know that. Adam, how do you know that? It doesn't say that. You know what? You can reasonably assume that this was after the fact and they put it in. Here was God calling them to do something in faith that seemed crazy, that seemed ill-timed, that seemed like the worst thing you could do at that moment. But God said, no, we got to deal with this. we got to make it happen. Verse 9, Then Yahweh said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the place has been called Gilgal to this day. And Gilgal sounds like the Hebrew for roll, uh, so that you know, I've rolled away your shame. And so that's why they named the place Gilgal. Verse 10, on the evening of the 14th day of the month, while they were camped at Gilgal in the plains of Jordan, the Israelites celebrated Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grains, and the manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Okay, what does that mean? What's going on there? Well, as they had traveled through the wilderness, I said a few weeks ago, we aren't sure how many people were part of Israel at this time. We don't know how many people crossed the Jordan River. But the estimates are somewhere between half a million to 2.5 million. And I won't bore you with the ways that historians and mathematicians have estimated this number, but the estimates are between half a million and 2.5 million people. That's a lot of people. How do you feed that many people for 40 years while being nomadic wanderers in the desert? God miraculously provided 
for his people. Every morning they would wake up and there was this strange bread-like substance on the ground and they called it manna. Hey, what, what is this? Oh, we don't know. It's manna. We don't know what it is. And so that's what the word means. We don't know. And they would eat it every morning. And apparently it was pretty tasty. And then every night, God caused these flocks of birds to just come and settle down. And they'd go around and take some of the birds and they'd kill them and they'd have meat for dinner. And then in the morning they'd have manna and they'd just go about traveling from one oasis to the other so they'd have water. And that was how they lived for 40 years. Then they get into the promised land. They eat the produce, the fruits of the promised land. And the manna stopped. It's done. It's no longer needed. There's a lot of picture language to me here. That, first of all, there are things in the Old Testament that we recognize are there, but we no longer as Christians feel bound to. That part of the old covenant law has been fulfilled in Jesus and we are no longer bound to it. And so we can recognize as they entered the promised land and they ate the produce of the land that was the grace of God. They did not do anything to earn it. They did not do anything for it to grow. It grew and they took and they ate And they're experiencing the grace of God, and now they no longer need that temporary provision of God that they had had in the previous 40 years. The law, we were told in the book of Galatians, was just meant to be a temporary measure. Humanity sinned. They rebelled against God. The curse of sin and death. What do you do until Jesus comes? So God put the law in place. This is what you will live by. God put the systems of sacrifice in place. And every year you had to make another set of sacrifices because it was always temporary. Just like the manna, it wouldn't last. In fact, the people of Israel, some of them tried to like store some away, you know, for, for later. But it would spoil, it would rot. They couldn't keep it for more than a day. It was always meant to be temporary. And then they came into the land of promise, the land that God had given them. And they entered into the permanent grace of God. Just as the first Christians were there in the book of Acts and they had lived their whole life under that temporary law and now here they are tasting the permanent grace of God, the permanent power of the Holy Spirit. They had entered in and the temporary stopped. I also think in our lives there's a picture of God's provision. I have seen in my life where God has provided miraculously for myself, for my family, for this church, for other churches that I have been a part of. God's provision is incredible. And there have been times where I have seen God's provision come in a certain way, and then it just stops. And you go, huh, you know, that seems to have ended, but it seems okay because there's a new setup happening and we're good now. This is weird. The provision of God, there's temporary times, seasons where there's just, hey, this needs to happen. This blessing, this provision, this encouragement needs to happen in this season. And now, hey, maybe you don't need it anymore. And that's okay. You can then rejoice and say, I'm thankful for the work that God did. 
one of my favorite favorite books, I've talked about it before, is Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. It's a biography of Hudson Taylor, who was a missionary to China, and he was one of the few uh, Western missionaries who embraced the culture as opposed to trying to bring British culture. He just embraced China and its culture, and all the people that worked with him did the same. They, they basically said, we want nothing to do with the sort of imperialistic, racist uh, part of missions work that was going on people leaving Europe and England to go to Asia. We said, we just want to bring Jesus to people and we are going to dress Chinese and live Chinese and embrace Chinese culture and bring Jesus. Well, one year, the giving was down. But as they were exchanging money, every time they had to exchange money from British money into Chinese money, the exchange rate was always favorable no matter what. And they actually, even though they had less given that year, they ended up with more because of favorable exchange rates. But it only happened that one year. The next year, that same thing didn't happen. The giving went back to normal and they were fine, but the exchange rates were just the exchange rates. It wasn't miraculous the way it had been. I believe that there are times and seasons where God provides, blesses, empowers. Maybe there's a thing where you just need strength, faith, special power from God, a special work of the Holy Spirit. And then you just move forward and you say, well, that time seems to be over. I still feel God's working in my life. I'm still rejoicing. But you know what? That season has passed. Nothing wrong with that. We don't have to pine for the old days. What if they said, oh, where's the manna? Hey, you're in the promised land. Where is the, the manna that God used to provide every morning? Well, now you're here and you have an abundance of land flowing with milk and honey and grain and you don't need to, it's here. If God has done something miraculous and it ceases because now we're in a new season, don't lament the passing of the old, rejoice in what God did and then we move forward and say, God, what's the next thing you want from me? And then that night, they were camping near Jericho Verse 13, and it says that Joshua was near Jericho and he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? And you can imagine this. Joshua is sitting alone at a campfire or maybe he's just sitting there and he looks in the edge of his vision. He sees somebody with a sword in his hand and he doesn't recognize him. And he says, hey, are you one of my guys or are you one of my enemies? And he's getting ready to fight. Maybe, you know, the people, uh, Jericho, have sent an assassin to take him out. Maybe there's a hot-headed young soldier who just wants to come and, and be with his commander and, and get close to Joshua and say, like, what's the plan, boss, you know? And so he says, who are you? Are you with us? Or are you against us? Are you one of us? Or are you one of our enemies? And isn't that the conversation that happens today in our country? Isn't that the conversation? Are you with us? Or are you with them? Are you on our side of the aisle? Or are you on that other side of the aisle? Are you one of the good people? Or one of the sorry people? We have these lines that are div divisive and dividing. And we want to know which side you're on. And sadly, many churches have fallen into this trap of division. Are you modern or traditional? Are you liberal or conservative? Do you subscribe to this or do you stand against that? Let me be honest and truthful. Some of you guys know Bob Middleton, part of our church. Bob and I used to pastor in a different group of churches. That's where we met years ago. 
And we talked about this, how we both feel like there's large parts of that previous group of churches that would judge whether we could pastor a church in, in that denomination, not based on our theology, not based on whether we love Jesus or not, not based on whether we care about people, but based on whether we can pass the litmus test of their politics. Shameful. Jesus has no interest in these things. And how do I know that? Because in verse 14, after being asked, are you with us or with our enemies? God, the, the person says, neither, he replied. I am the commander of the army of Yahweh, and I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? This is interesting. If this is an angel appearing to Joshua, we know that multiple places in the Bible, multiple places in the Bible, an angel appears, somebody falls down in reverence, and the angel says, don't do that. Get up. I'm just your fellow servant of God. Worship God alone. And yet here, the angel doesn't do that. He allows it. There is a thought that this is Jesus himself. There seems to be times in the Old Testament where somebody appears who sure seems to resemble Jesus. Some people think Melchizedek in the book of Genesis might be Jesus appearing. Others see Dan, uh, not Daniel, but the other three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the story of the fiery furnace in the book of Daniel. And the king throws these three guys in the fiery furnace because they refuse to bow down and worship false gods. And when they get in there, he says, all right, are they dead? And there's, the king's servants say, no, they're, they're walking around like it's no big deal. And there's a fourth person in the fire, and he looks like the son of God. And so there's actually like theologians and smart people have come up with this word called Christophany. And that's the idea. Anytime we see somebody in the Old Testament and it's like, is that Jesus? It's a Christophany. We don't know. It could be. It might not be. You know, Jesus definitely was born. There was a start point to his life as a human. But after he rose from the dead and he's there with, with God in heaven and sitting at the right hand of the Father, is he bound by space and time? Could he not appear to people in those days? I tend to think this is my personal opinion. If you disagree with me, that's totally fine, and I could be totally wrong. I tend to think that this is Jesus. That's why the reverence and the bowing and all of that is allowed. That's my personal opinion. If it's not Jesus, if I get to heaven and I found out I was wrong, I'm sorry. It's just my opinion. The bigger point is this, though. When the commander of the Lord's army shows up and Joshua says, Whose side are you on? Are you on our side or are you on their side? Are you on our side? We're the people of Israel. We're the children of Israel. We are the people of the covenant with God. God met us on Mount Sinai and said, I will be your God. You will be my people. If God's army commander is going to be on anyone's side, you'd think it would be Joshua's. You'd think it would be Israel's. And what does he say? He says, neither. I'm not on your side, Joshua. I'm not on their side, Joshua. I'm on the Lord's side. And he says, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. 
Friends, I believe this firmly. I believe that God would speak to the church in America and we would say, God, whose side are you on? And he would say, neither. I'm on my side. And I'm inviting you to get on my side. And we can look around and we can say, oh, you know, I don't think that they have the right theology. Surely they can't be on God's side. I don't think they have the right morals. They must not be on God's side. I don't think they have the right politics. They must not be on God's side. I don't think they have the right style or, or format or liturgy or tradition or whatever. They can't be on God's side. And God's saying, none of that be on my side. And so as a church family, that's the goal, is to be on Jesus' side and to recognize our brothers and our sisters in different types of churches, in different faith traditions. You know, hey, there's a Baptist over here. There's a Pentecostal over there. There's somebody who's Reformed. There's somebody who's not Reformed. There's somebody who's modern. Somebody who's traditional. That church is a little liberal. That church is a little conservative. Do they believe in the same Jesus? Then we're on board. Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in the same Jesus. It's not that I wish, I wish that they did, but by their own admission they don't. Is Jesus God, fully God? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is equally God with the other two parts of the Trinity. And they would say, no, Jesus is the Son of God. Or he's a God, like the Mormons say. Is Jesus God? No, he's just a good teacher. Is Jesus the only way to heaven? No, he's not. Well, then I don't agree with that. If you say that Jesus isn't God, if you say that Jesus isn't the only way, if you say that anybody can come to God the Father through any other means than Jesus, then we cannot be on the same page. But if you agree with these non-negotiable truths of the gospel, then how can I be divided from you? Now, there are people that we are never going to be best friends with. Fully admit that. There's a church here in Portland. I know the pastor very little you know, here and there. I've, I've spent some time with him. He's a nice guy. He's a good guy. I think he means well. His theology is terrible. I'm not going to say that he's not a believer just because I think he's wrong about a lot of things. I think he should read his Bible a little more closely. And we can get so arrogant about wanting to get sides and draw up fault lines and say, this is who we are and you better be with us. And he says, neither. What is he interested in? He says, Joshua, take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. What made that ground holy? It had nothing to do with Joshua. What made that ground holy? It was just a, a patch of earth. But it was that the presence of God was working there. Some places are holy because the Spirit of God is working and moving. Some places are holy because it's an important event in your life. There are places and moments in our lives that are sacred, that are holy, monuments like we talked about last week. And this was a holy time for Israel. There was this issue that they had not been keeping the covenant that they had agreed to keep. And so God said, hey, you guys need to get back on track and keep the covenant. And one of the most obvious ways that they weren't keeping the covenant is that they had not circumcised their, children, their firstborn sons, or sorry, not their firstborn sons, but all their sons. They had not circumcised them on the eighth day, so God said, get that in line. 
And God didn't tell them to do it before they crossed the Jordan, didn't tell them to do that in the middle of the wilderness, told them to do it after they crossed the Jordan, because unbeknownst to the people of Israel, they didn't realize it till later, God had prepared it so that their enemies would not attack them during this time of vulnerability. They were safe. And here's Joshua, and God is speaking to him. Joshua, I'm not on your side. I'm not on their side. I'm on my side. And if God wants the people of Israel to be in the promised land, then it is a holy thing. And if it's not, then it's an evil thing. It's holy in that place because the Spirit of God is moving. It's holy in that place because it's a moment where they submitted themselves to God's word and they lived out the commands that they were given. It's it's only holy because of God and what he was doing and what was happening in that moment. There are these buildings, places where people say, oh, that's a holy place. There's nothing holy about it if the Spirit of God isn't there. There's nothing holy about it if people aren't submitting and living their lives. Oh, that's a sacred place. That's a sacred space. But if it's not full of love from God, if it's not full of humility, if it's not full of reverence for the gospel, if it's not full of reverence for God's word, if it's not full of saying, Jesus, change us so that we can live as your hands and your feet in this world, there's nothing holy there. And everything that's happening here in this little in-between, the crossing of the Jordan and the, the battle at Jericho, and this little in-between moment is about God doing his work to bring his people collectively and Joshua individually into a place of holiness. And here's the interesting thing. They didn't have to wait to enter the promised land. They didn't have to wait to cross the Jordan River. They didn't have to wait for God to speak to them. They didn't have to do these things in order for all that to happen. They entered the promised land. They crossed the Jordan River miraculously on dry ground. God was speaking to them. God was using them. God was moving among them miraculously. Even though they had this issue in their lives. And that is both wonderful and dangerous. And here's why it's wonderful. 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 And here's why. Because people think that they need to get their stuff together and get things straightened out and then God can use me. I need to get my stuff together. I need to get straightened out and then I'll show up to church. I need to get my act together. I need to get cleaned up so that I can be around God's people. And that is not the case. We need Jesus. We don't need to get cleaned up so that we can go to Jesus. We need Jesus to clean us up. Jesus is the one who straightens us out. Jesus is the one who cleans us up. Jesus is the one who changes our lives. And if you think, oh, I got to get my act together and then I can come to church. I got to get my act together and then God can use me. I got to get my act together and then I can be around God's people. That is the opposite of the good news of Jesus. And it's the opposite of this story. They didn't have their act together. There was this major glaring thing that they had not done for, gener- for, for years and years and decades. A whole generation had not been living in obedience in this, in this area. And yet God still used them. And God still worked in them. But then there came a moment where God said, no more. We're going to get this straightened out. We're going to get this in line. And they submitted to that work. But they'd already crossed the promised land, into the promised land. They'd already crossed the Jordan. They'd already been hearing from God and being used by God and seeing the miracles of God. And that's why it's so wonderful that it had nothing to do with them. It had to do with God and his work 
and the Holy Spirit's power and the love of Jesus, even if they didn't know about Jesus yet, even though they just think, oh, it's the commander of the Lord's army. I know, again, my opinion. That's the wonderful thing about it. Here's the dangerous thing about it. Here's the dangerous thing about it. In the grace of God, people can think, oh, I can just go on and I can go on and I can go on as if nothing is that big a deal. You know, there's a guy in the book of Judges named Samson. You've heard of him. He was really strong. And you know what the interesting thing about Samson is? His strength, he, he understood that his strength came from God. He understood that his strength was not natural. It was supernatural. And if you know the story, you'll know that he believed that if he, if he ever cut his hair, his strength would flee from him. Even though there were a bunch of other parts to the Nazarite vow, it wasn't just don't cut your hair. There were a whole bunch of other things involved. And he ignored all of those other things, and yet God in his grace still worked and moved in Samson until he didn't anymore. You see, it wasn't about Samson's hair. That's what everybody gets wrong about the story. It was that this was the point where God said, I'm not, I'm not going to have my hand on you for right now. And Samson, because he thought, oh, these other things, God's not punishing me for this little thing. God's not, not coming down on me hard for this, this sin over here. God's not taking my strength away because I ignored him over there. And then in our arrogance, we start to think that, oh, just because God hasn't dealt with me yet, because he's been gracious to me, because he's had mercy on me, because he's had patience with me that he's not going to deal with me at all. And this I would say to non-believers... We might think, oh, you know what? God hasn't come back. Jesus hasn't come back yet. You know, God hasn't judged this earth. There's going to come a time, but he's had patience and grace and mercy, and he's been calling people to repentance. And believers might say, you know what? I know I'm forgiven, but you know what? Jesus hasn't dealt with me over there. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to mind yet, and there will come a time. It happens for everybody. Be sure your sins will find you out. And then you have to deal with it, the ramifications. And here, at this moment, in the in-between, crossing the Jordan River and the Battle of Jericho, in this moment, in the in-between, God was dealing with his people. He said, hey, let's straighten this out. Let's get back on the right track. Let's fix this thing before it becomes a bigger issue. And in this moment, we have a holy place as God was making a holy people. Hey, I want to say thank you again for joining us this Sunday morning. If you have any questions or you're like, hey, I, what, did you, what did you mean there? You can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. If you just want to say hi and connect, we'd love to see you on a Sunday morning. Love to connect with you in our small groups. We, we think online church is totally valid as long as people are connected as a church. And so, you know, there are people that work Sunday mornings and then, hey, I can come to small group on Tuesday night. Great, we'd love to see you. We meet every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person, and we'll see you next Sunday as we continue to study the book of Joshua. God bless you. God bless you.